Let's pray once more. Father, thank you for the word as it was just read. We pray for your Spirit's help. We pray for your Spirit to minister to each of us through the word, by your grace, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, last week we started looking at chapter 3, and we noted how at chapter 3, you face a pivotal point in the book of Colossians, where Paul makes his typical shift from theological development to now theological application. So after laying out a robust theology of Christ in chapters 1 and 2, now he's going to talk about how that theology makes a difference in our lives. And making a difference is really what our passage is all about. In verses 5 to 17, Paul is going to explain how to change, how to be different, how to improve yourself. And that's obviously a huge subject, how to change. That's what everyone's trying to figure out. The entire educational system, the entire field of psychology and psychotherapy, the whole, whole point of counseling and, and social work, and you can even argue economics and politics, is to answer the question, how do people change? You know, one of the encouraging trends we see nowadays is how people are more willing to go to therapy or to get counseling and to be open about it to talk about it openly, to be willing to tell others, yeah, I I need help, and that's why I'm going to a therapist, I'm going to a counselor. What we've been seeing is the stigma of therapy or counseling has been slowly fading, and that's a good thing. Now, with all the introspection that takes place in therapy, with all the self-analysis of our childhood experiences and of our repressed memories, we definitely now have a better sense of where our problems lie. We are more willing to acknowledge our emotional wounds, our addictions, our neurosis, and many people have had breakthroughs, experienced significant breakthroughs through therapy. Now they have a much better grasp of the issues that they're dealing with. But friends, that's the limit. That's how far therapy will take you. It will help you to see the problem. But until you introduce religion, until you are willing to deal with the soul, with religious truth claims, you'll see the problem, but you'll lack what it takes to make a genuine change. There's this story that Becky Pipper tells in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. Some of you are going to remember her as one of our speakers from the CMC conference we had this past winter. She describes this time that she audited a psychotherapy course at Harvard. The professor was going over a case study where the therapist had helped the patient uncover a hidden hostility towards his mother, diagnosing what had been bothering him for so many years, finally being able to name it, had brought great relief to the patient. Now, the professor was about to move on to the next case, but Pippert quietly raised her hand, and she asked the professor, 
professor, that, that's great that the patient was finally able to recognize what's been bothering him and to name it, but, but what, what if he comes back a few weeks later and asks, how do I get past my anger towards my mother? How do I actually forgive her and begin to love her? How do I do that? So how does psychotherapy help a person with a request like that? And Pippert describes that in the classroom there was a deafening silence. And eventually the professor answered, I think the therapist would say, lots of luck. And then he went on to explain that, you know, it's already a huge accomplishment just to be able to face your hidden hostilities, to be able to name your anxieties and fears, for this man to expect his hostilities to just magically, you know, disappear um, isn't realistic. He's going to probably have to just learn to live with it and hopefully not be driven by it. Now, that remark really provoked the class, and it stirred up a whole lot of discussion. And other students chimed in, wondering if, if that's all therapy can offer. Isn't the whole point to help people change? How do we help people forgive and to, to love those who have wounded us? The students kept going back and forth with the professor, and, and finally, in a moment of probably unintended candor, the professor told the class, look, guys, if you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. In other words, therapy can only get you so far. It can help you see the problem. It can help you name the problem. It can even help you cope with the problem. But to change, to overcome, to experience real transformation and a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department, friends. We have to look to the gospel, and that's what we find in this morning's passage. Paul is going to tell us what's wrong with us. He's going to name it, but then he's going to go on and provide a solution to how we actually change. And he answers in three ways. If you want to follow along, look in your, your bulletin. You'll find an outline with these three ways. First, we've got to put to death the remaining sins that characterize the old self. Second, we've got to prioritize the radical regeneration that produces the new self. And third, we've got to put on the righteous virtues that characterize the new self. So this is where we're going. Let's see the first thing that Paul says about how to change. He says, you've got to kill something. I know that sounds dramatic, but that's what he says. He's talking about putting to death the remaining sins that characterize the old self. Look at verse 5 again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, earlier in verses 1 to 4, Paul already talked about who is a Christian, who a Christian is in identity. He was saying a Christian is not just a religious person, but a resurrected person, someone who has died with Christ, someone who has been raised with Christ, whose life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's a Christian. Paul, in his letters, likes to use this idea of, a, of an old self 
and a new self. It shows up here in verses 9 and 10. Literally, it says, an old man and a new man. And so that's why there's good reason to believe he's actually referring to our identity in Adam or in Christ. We explained last week how everyone is born by nature in Adam, in the old man. That makes Adam our federal head, our representative, which means everything that is true of him is true of us. Adam was under the curse of sin, and so are we. Because of our union with the old man, the old self, we are under sin. So why do we sin? Why does everyone do it? Why is it that you don't even need to teach a toddler how to sin? It just comes natural. It's because we are all born into the old self. And the old self is the root of all sin. It's where sin comes from. Salvation, friends. Salvation, therefore, requires a radical reorientation, a conversion experience where you break ties with Adam, you die to the old self, you crucify the old self. That's how Paul likes to put it. Listen with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So when we were under the old self, Paul says we were slaves to sin. Think about it with me this way. When we were under the old self, we were once slaves to sin's power and sin's penalty. To be under the enslaving power of sin means that you ultimately can't resist it. You might be able to for a short while, but in the end, sin has dominion. We are all under sin's dread sway. And the legal penalty of sin, we are told, incurs the wrath of God. The wrath of God that Paul mentions there in verse 6. I know it's not a popular or pleasant thing to say, but friends, the wrath of God is coming to punish you for your sins, and the wrath will not relent. But the good news of the gospel, the good news is that Christ came and he took the wrath when he took the place of sinners on the cross. Christians are those who not only believe that Christ was crucified for them, they believe that they were crucified with Christ. Their old self, the body of sin, was brought to nothing on the cross. So that is why we are no longer enslaved to sin. If you're a Christian, you are free from sin's power and sin's penalty. But here's the humbling reality for every Christian. You have yet to rid yourself of sin's presence. That's the sobering reality. Sin can no longer condemn you. It can no longer control you, but it can still influence you through its remaining presence. That's what's still earthly in you, according to verse 5. And Paul says that's what you need to put to death. 
He goes on to describe the various kinds of sins that remain that Christians still have to deal with. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He goes on to say in verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So when we were living in Adam, when we were in the old self, our lives were characterized by these very sinful behaviors and attitudes. But now, did you notice him saying that in verse 8? But now that we have died with Christ, now that our old self has been crucified with him on the cross, now we are to put away these sins that characterize the old self. We are to put them to death. We are to kill them. Here's another way to put it. We are to mortify our sins. To mortify our sin. This semester, I've been reading John Owen's The Mortification of Sin with one of our college students, and it's a great book on sanctification. It's about how one changes, particularly in regards to sin and temptation. And in the book, Owen quotes Colossians 3, verse 5, and he explains how mortification is the responsibility of every single believer. We should make it our business all our days to mortify the indwelling power of sin, he says. And he has this one great line where he says, Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I remember the first time I, I, I read those words when I was a younger believer, and it, it didn't make sense. It, it was a foreign concept because I was under the impression that since sin had been defeated at the cross, the fight was over. I, I thought I didn't have to do anything. I, I thought I just had to rest in Jesus' victory. And, and yes, th there is truth to that statement, but that's not the only truth that you are to state when you're trying to answer the question, how do people change? If the question was, how do people get right with God? How do pitiful sinners get reconciled to a holy, righteous God? Yeah, if that was the question, well, then the answer would be to simply rest in Jesus' victory, in his death and resurrection. You don't contribute anything to getting right with God. That's all Jesus. That's all God's grace. But if we're talking about, if we're talking about how people change, how a Christian matures into faith, then, then, friends, realize you've got to do something. You've got to kill something. You've got to mortify the remaining sin in your life. Well, of course, this is where we have to clarify what exactly that looks like. Mortifying sin, friends, is not the same thing as restraining sin. You can, you can restrain a lion with, within a cage. You can prevent that lion from roaming around and, and devouring its prey. But the hunger, the lust for prey is still there. And then the question really is, how strong is your cage? Well, in the same way, 
You can restrain someone or you can restrain yourself from acting out on those sins in which we are so inclined. That might serve as a temporary solution, but please do not confuse the restraint of sin with mortification of sin. You can try your best to avoid temptations. You can try your hardest to prevent yourself from acting upon them. You might find some method, some technique to cage your sinful lusts. But the truth remains that they remain unmortified. And the question is, how strong is your cage? And I'm going to bet that sin is always going to grow stronger than whatever cage you can put it in. Friends, the solution, the solution is to mortify your sin, to kill that lion. And for animal lovers out there, just work with me. It's a metaphor. The thing is, though, you can't slay your sin with a sword like you could a lion. According to Scripture, the way you mortify sin, the way you do it, is by starving it. The opposite of mortifying sin would be to feed sin, to gratify the desires of your flesh, what is still earthly in you. That's what Paul says not to do. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or this is Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So you might be successful in restraining your lust so that you're not committing the same acts of sexual immorality that you used to in the past, but are you starving your lust, malnourishing it so that it grows weaker and more feeble and less enticing? Or are you still making provision for the flesh, feeding it with what you take in through your eyes or what you fantasize about in your mind? If you keep feeding your flesh with impure images and ideas, then it's just like feeding your caged lion, a chunk of nutritious raw meat every night. Don't be surprised if it grows so strong that it breaks free of that cage one day. Friends, you've got to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it all away. And you do it primarily by starving your sin, by making no provision for the flesh, by no longer feeding it. So ask yourself this question, what have I been feeding my soul? What have I been intaking? Have I been inviting impurity into my life? If, if, if even just my thought life, have I been feeding my covetousness, not being content with what I have in Christ? Have I been stewing on my anger, my wrath, my malice towards those who have hurt me, who have offended me? What can I do from this point on to starve the desires of the flesh, to mortify the remaining sin in my life? That's a question for you to ponder. That's a question for you 
to meditate on together with an accountability partner, with your family, with your community group. What can you do to starve your flesh, to mortify your remaining sin? That's an important question to answer if we truly want to change, if we want to experience the newness of life that we have in Christ. But here's another important question. How are these efforts to starve the flesh going to be any different from the self-made efforts of avoidance and deprivation that we talked about last week that Paul had called insufficient back in chapter 2, verse 23. There he had said that asceticism and the severe treatment of the body is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so in both cases here, we're going to be exerting effort. We're contributing to the process of change, of improvement. But what marks the difference What marks the difference between moralistic change and gospel change? Well, the answer is that moralistic change is focused on behavior, while gospel change, while not ignoring behavior, focuses first on identity. This is our second point. If we want to change, then prioritize the radical regeneration that produces the new self. Paul alludes to this in verses 9 to 10. Let me read that again. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So notice with me Paul's logic. His concern here is that we stop lying. So you could say he's concerned with behavior. But did you notice how his call for behavioral change is based on his prior teaching of identity change, seeing that you have put off the old self and have put on the new self. For there to be true change of behavior, there first has to be a fundamental change of identity. Just ask yourself, when is a thief no longer a thief? Some people might say, well, when he stops thieving. Well, no, he would still be a thief. He's just a thief in between jobs. There won't, be a, there won't be a change in his actual behavior until there's a change, a radical change in his identity. That's why moralistic change is insufficient. It restrains the old self, but it's not going to put it off. The lion in that cage is still a lion. He's restrained, but he's not changed. He still has his lion-like nature. But my friends, gospel change is going to turn that lion into a lamb, into a new creation. Gospel change is about a radical regeneration where through the Holy Spirit, you are born again. You become a new person with a new identity that we call the new self. And it's only out of that new identity that we can realistically expect genuine, lasting behavioral change to be a changed person. And that's why Paul started chapter 3 with four verses about the Christian's new identity. As we already said, chapters 3 and 4 are all about how we are to live as Christians. It covers a number of behaviors starting in verse 5. 
But the thing is, is that you can't get to the command in verse 5 until you've gone through verses 1 to 4 and the gospel realities about your new identity in Christ. In other words, Paul's not going to tell you what you ought to do until he first reminds you who you actually are. Because the gospel is about being something before it's about doing something. I'm sure you know people in your life who are hesitant to become a Christian because their first thought is, if I become a Christian, it means I'm going to have to stop doing something or I'm going to have to start doing something. And it sounds either too hard or just unappealing to them. Friends, you've got to tell your friend, tell them you're focusing on the wrong thing. Yes, behavior will come into play. Christianity does concern behavior, but that's not the pressing issue for someone who is not yet a Christian. The pressing issue is not about changing your behavior. It's about being changed altogether with a brand new identity. Let's say you've got a sour lemon tree, but you want sweet oranges. Well, I'm sorry to say, but those branches are naturally going to be filled with sour lemons. You can pick them all off. You can hand tie sweet oranges onto all the branches, and it might look like an orange tree for a little while, but in time, the lemons are going to grow back, and those tied on oranges are going to rot and fall off, and what you are left with is what you started with, a lemon tree. If You can't just pick off what you don't like and put on what you do. That, my friends, will not produce genuine, lasting change. If you want to change, if you truly want sweet oranges, then you're going to have to change that tree altogether from its root. It needs to be a brand new thing. I think there are some of you trying to become a Christian you're trying to become a Christian by putting on certain behaviors. You've, you've grown up in this environment. You know the expectations. You know how you're supposed to behave. But really, you're just dressing up a sour lemon tree. You're more focused on the fruit of behavior, but you're ignoring the root of identity. If you want to truly change, then yes, you will have to deal with your behavior. You're going to have to put some things to death. You're going to have to mortify remaining sin. But none of that is going to matter if you don't go through a radical regeneration where your identity is fundamentally changed, where you become a new self. And that only comes by grace through faith. Through faith, you believe in these gospel realities. Through faith, you ask God to grant you the new birth, to make you into a new self. Now, Christian, for those of you who have experienced this new birth, this radical regeneration, Christian, please don't get too high on yourself just because you are a new self. The new self is not yet perfect. It is still a work in process. Paul says that in verse 10. The new self is still 
being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so that means we all still have a ways to go. We still need to change. We need to improve. We need to grow in godliness to look more like God, our creator. But the whole point is that this growth, this change is made possible because of that new identity we have in Christ. At the core of who you are as a Christian is this truth. I am united with Christ. I have died with him. I have been raised with him. My life is now hidden with him in God. That is the most fundamental aspect of a Christian's identity. Being united with Christ is so central to who you are that it transcends any difference that you might have with another believer. Paul says this in verse 11. Here, that is, in Christ... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So he's not saying that within a church all our differences are erased. What he's saying is that we might have different ethnicities, different religious upbringings, different socioeconomic statuses, but there can be a beautiful unity between us all because Christ is all. And in all. So we've seen this importance of of reading Colossians in sequential order, preaching it in sequential order, making sure you go through verses one to four on Christian identity before you start dealing with change in behavior in verse five and on. If you want genuine lasting change in your life, then you first need to be changed in Christ. You've got to become something new before you're expected to do something different. But now, friends, if you are new in Christ, then you've got something to do to change yourself. And that leads to our third point. If you, as a Christian, want to change, then put on the righteous virtues that characterize the new self. These virtues are described for us starting in verse 12. We're responsible to put these things on. So this is how I, how I see it. When Paul speaks here of putting off the old self and putting on the new, he's describing salvation. He's having his picture taking off an old, dirty clothes and putting on a new set of clean clothes called the new self. And picture, this is something that God totally does to you through the Holy Spirit, solely by His grace. He dresses you in new clothes, in robes of righteousness, dressing you in the identity of His beloved Son. By grace, He chooses you, and He calls you holy and beloved. Now, if this is what God has already done, if God has already put the new self on us by His sovereign grace, then what are we supposed to be putting on here in verses 12 to 14? If he's already done that, he's given us the new clothes, what are we still putting on? Well, think about it this way. We're putting on the matching accessories. That's how I like to see it. The primary clothes that we wear as Christians is Christ. Christ is our life. Well, now look at these virtues that Paul is listing out for us. Notice how they perfectly describe Christ. 
So picture these righteous virtues as matching accessories that perfectly complement our identity in Christ, our outfit in Christ. So let me read verses 12 to 14. And as I name each of these virtues, just ask yourself this question. Have I put on this particular accessory or is it glaringly missing in my outfit? Which ones do you need to focus on putting on? Listen to what the apostle says. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Do you have those accessories? Or is something missing? What are you to put on? Now, you're probably wondering with me, how do I put this on? How do I put on these virtues? Well, Paul explains that for us in verses 15 to 17. There are two things we are to let Jesus do in our lives to put these things on. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Let's consider each. First, look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. This, my friends, is a verse about Christian community. This is a verse about the church. That's the one body that we're called in. And so if you want to put on these virtues, then you've got to be in community with other believers and to live peaceably with them. Did you you notice how these virtues listed for us, these virtues that we're supposed to put on, can only be recognized and expressed in relationship with others? If you live in isolation or if you just live in loose association with other Christians, then you wouldn't have the opportunity to detect these virtues in your life or the opportunity to express them on a regular basis. How will you know if you have put on a compassionate heart unless you're in community with people who are needier than you, who need your help? And on the flip side, how will you know if you have put off covetousness unless you're in community with people who have more than you, who have what you wish you had in your life? If you want to put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience, well then be in close quarters with someone who has an ego bigger or as big as yours or with a personality that totally rubs you in the wrong way. Bearing with that person instead of complaining and forgiving that person as the Lord has forgiven you, that's how you become kind, humble, meek, and patient. Our tendency is to gravitate towards people that we like, who get us, who we easily get along with. Enjoying community is so much easier that way if that's your only goal. But if your goal is to change, if your goal is to mature in Christ, then it's not easier that way. It's actually hard 
to mature in virtue, in Christ's likeness, when you're only engaging with people who are like you and who you like. That's why we need the church. That's why we need each other. We're born-again people with different personalities and varying degrees of remaining sin can rub up against each other and, and sometimes rub each other the wrong way. The church is like a tumbler, you know, a, a tumbler where, where you place a, a bunch of rough stones, precious stones, but they're still very raw with a lot of rough edges. But in that tumbler, you know, tossed around together, rubbing up against one another, we come out changed, looking like gems, looking more like our precious Savior. So friends, how would you describe your experience of community in this church? Are you just loosely associated? Only gravitating towards people that you like? Or are you letting God put you in that tumbler that we call gospel community and letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart as you are rubbing up against one another? And lastly, if you want to put on these righteous virtues, then verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That word of Christ there in verse 16 is another way of referring to the gospel, the good news of our compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient Lord and Savior who bore with us by bearing our sins on the cross, forgiving us, loving us, binding us together as the church in perfect harmony. We put on these virtues by richly dwelling in that gospel together. And so if you're new to our church, we want to make this commitment to you. We commit as a church, to be a church that always teaches the gospel, that wisely admonishes one another with the gospel, that regularly sings the truth of the gospel, and everything we do as a church, we're going to do giving thanks to God for the gospel. Our commitment is to be a gospel-centered church that never tires of proclaiming the gospel because we believe that's how you change. That's our commitment to helping you change. Father, we thank you for the gospel, this glorious truth of what you have accomplished for us in Christ, doing what we could not do for ourselves, giving us a new life, a new identity in the righteousness of Christ. And now, out of this identity, out of this new self, may you empower us by your Spirit to put to death what is of the old, to continue putting on the new, and to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in godliness, to be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.